Welcome to Navigating the New Normal, Grant Thornton's podcast exploring trends in business and the marketplace. Today I am joined by Richard Nutt, Tax Partner and Specialist in Global Trade and Customs, and Mark Phillips, National Head of Performance Improvement and Manufacturing Industry Expert. Today we're talking about Australian manufacturing beyond the initial round of MMI funding and how we land those 10-year roadmaps. Welcome, Richard and Mark. Yeah, good afternoon, Therese. Good afternoon, Theresa. Okay, now let's start with sentiment. All six priority roadmaps are now out. How are you feeling about the goals we've set and what those roadmaps say about the future of manufacturing in Australia? Yeah, look, it's got to be a positive uh, when government have made a commitment to invest in uh, manufacturing in Australia. I know with interest, uh, there is a, of the sectors that we've already chosen to be part of the initiative, is it's probably already, I would say in some instances, quite mature manufacturing sectors, especially the food and beverage, who are already enjoying excellent growth in international markets, which uh, I get this is where this initiative is steering us towards. So I'm just interested in it. has that been done on purpose to give the maybe a better return on the investment sooner rather than later? Because I think with some of the sectors that have been chosen, it's going to be a longer burn and it's going to be a long time before we see any return on that investment. Look, I, I think the, the setting of the priority industries is, is great because it's a, a recognition that we, we have an opportunity for the reverse of the trend, which has been a decline in manufacturing. I, I don't think the public would dispute that there's uh, no future for manufacturing. It's now moved on from the ordinary days when Parliament basically stated we didn't need an automotive sector and we could do without manufacturing and we've moved now into a recognition that not only is manufacturing wanted, manufacturing is supported more broadly by the community, more broadly by the investment marketplace. So there is clearly a, a future for manufacturing and I think my main thing that I'd like to look at is that is government best place to to pick winners we've come up with six focus industries and to me the simplicity of manufacturing should be value adding where you either have a market or you have a competitive advantage mm. um, if we produce the raw materials we should be valuating in this country there has to be a competitive opportunity associated with that um, I do note as well the timing of when this initiative was launched um, towards the end of last year was complementary to the time when Australia agreed to be signatories to the um, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is the largest free trade agreement agreed upon with 15 key trading partners of Australia, most notably China, uh, Japan and Korea are going to participate in that. And that should actually help countries to get more involved in the global value chain when manufacturing products because it's got a lot lot of simplified processing around what they call rules of origin and it's then trying to simplify some of the challenging aspects of uh, when when dealing internationally of non-tariff barriers which can uh, prohibit your market access ability into certain markets. So one of the things that I find quite interesting about the six priority sectors is that there are some common themes around tech and automation mm. and and digitization. So it's manufacturing, but it's not manufacturing as we knew it, is it? Uh, look, it's manufacturing with less reliance on labor. There's a couple of reasons why you want to look at manufacturing with less labor. I mean, labor is an expensive input and 
labour is something that can't be calibrated. And what I mean by that is that the more physical interaction into the manufacturing processes, the, the greater likelihood that you're going to potentially have quality or consistency issues. But the flip side is that there's still a lot of opportunity that's more broader than the need to get too heavily involved in tech and automation because what tech and automation tends to do is make it less palatable to get involved in bespoke product. And bespoke product manufacturing always gives you a, a much higher margin if you can get it right. If, if I can produce one item, 100,000 units, all the same colour, all the same dimensions, I have a less excited customer than if I can produce one item that is to that customer's design, their, their desire, colour and everything else. So it improves margin uh, and with margin obviously comes improved profitability. The other thing too is that um, you need lower volumes at higher margins. So you become, it's e easier for an investor to get a return on their investment. Richard, just on that, would there also be an element of demand for those more bespoke products, particularly from an international market? Well, well, that's it. I think the point, if you've got a product that differentiates itself from the norm, um, you've got chance, a greater chance of succeeding in the international markets. I think if you look at the food and beverage sector and the agri-sector here in Australia, is Australians known for a procure of fine food and obviously quality wines. So that's why there's a big appetite to purchase Australian-made products in overseas markets, especially within Asia. And as a consequence, to get better margin on that product because of the position of that Australian-made flag or indicator on, on the product. So, yeah, I agree with Mark's point. It's, you know, the more bespoke product, uh, the higher-end products would that associate RP, it's got better value, but there's less chance of some some of a country being able to manufacture it. You know, you're going to get a greater demand and, and wanting for that product. Now, if I can ask you both to take your consulting hats off for just a second, there's mm. clearly some opportunity in this space. If you are an entrepreneur or an investor, would you be looking to set up a business in one of these sectors right now? That's an easy question for me to answer. I tend to be a little entrepreneurial myself, so I may have made some personal investments in manufacturing. If you're going to make an investment, you make an investment because you're going to see a return on that investment in a relatively short time frame. I think um, right now, supply chains are being stretched and they are. there's more evidence of how stretched they are of recent. Being so stretched is presenting lots of opportunity. And if you've got confidence in your ability to source product, to manufacture product, to work with your supply chains, to deliver against customer expectations, it's a good time to invest. I think the main thing, though, is that most investors look for a, uh, a relatively short payback period or a relatively short time frame to which they see a return on their investment. And whilst uh, some of the government programs do talk about outcomes 10 years out, uh, most investors will look for something that delivers on their expectations in a much uh, shorter time frame. If you could find me a magical source for cedar timber right now, I would grab it as a manufacturer <laughs> because there's now a 12-month waiting period for accessing some raw materials from offshore. So it's, mm. a, it's a golden opportunity if you can produce a substitute product. Yeah, look, I agree with Mark. I think if I was to invest, it's, you'd have to really scrutinize what industry sector you're going to go into. But I think to what Mark was saying, I think one of the opportunities 
anything where we can add value. So if we're extracting something out of the ground, i.e. some minerals, and we can value add it, I would definitely be investing in that sector because I think that's where there's the biggest growth potential for Australia. You know, I think we can become a strong manufacturing sector in, in, the, in this space sooner rather than later. And I think you'll get a better, quicker return of investment rather than waiting for that 10-year period. Conversely, I think, you know, I think there's more opportunities if I was a food and beverage exporter as well is to tap into uh, the feel-good factor of our Australian-made products in that space and try and exploit the markets like India and the US, who's got a thirst for Australian products. But to my knowledge, they seem to be untapped markets. So would you anticipate there potentially could be a lot more entrance into the market, thinking that this would be a good time to, to add to the scale rather than to add a different kind of manufacturer into the mix? Look, I'd be more inclined to focus on, are you in the market already? Mm. This is a golden opportunity for you to expand what you're doing. Coming into a market as a new entrant, you'd need to have either some competitive advantage, be it a a guaranteed offtake for your product, some IP that allows you to produce something that that is wanted and desired right now. I'd ask that existing businesses that are either manufacturing or delivering end product to the uh, to consumers to look at opportunities. So so the place I'd look at is, is either existing manufacturers growing their footprint or do I have an opportunity for import substitution? So I think import substitution is a, a great opportunity because you, you've got a customer that's been buying a product that you've been sourcing offshore. You've now got a situation where Access to supply chains is a little bit difficult. Access to raw materials is is difficult. There's some concern around confidence that people can keep supplying. So I think uh, existing importers of product talk to manufacturers. There's manufacturing capability that can actually uh, turn a imported product into a locally manufactured product fairly quickly. Yeah, look, I tend to agree with what Mark's saying. I think it's going to be very hard if we're a new entrant as well. I think the, the biggest opportunity is, you know, tap into an existing uh, manufacturer and see how you can get some growth possibly into international markets or uh, substituting imported goods. But on that point, right, um, I think there's a missing piece in this strategy as well to stem the imports of, of, of imported goods in Australia. I think we need to give some incentives to say, hey, uh, in addition to these grants, um, what incentives can we offer companies to stop sourcing goods from overseas? I think that is part of the missing piece at the moment in, in the jigsaw puzzle, because I think that could just discourage people from investing in some of the, in, in some instances in manufacturing. I think I'm less concerned about that point, and, and it's more because the, the capital cost of equipment is very similar. It doesn't matter which country you manufacture from. The cost of labour is less of an issue because most of the, um, the the new equipment is highly automated. Your raw material input costs is clearly one of the costs where you've got to look at where you can and can't be competitive. And, and I think if we are producing the raw material onshore, government influencing the conversion of raw material into value-add product is clearly the, the most simplistic opportunity for us to improve our competitive position. Not only does it create local economic development, it actually reduces the amount of waste that's shipped all around the world. It reduces the amount of inefficiency. And with a reduction in waste and improved efficiency comes a reduction in price. So uh, if we start to spend more focus on value adding local, 
we will actually have an opportunity to not only grow the economy, grow jobs, but we could actually deliver product to the marketplace at a lower cost. And it's really interesting that you've both kind of spoken a little bit about the domestic market, because there does seem to be a tension between the domestic and the international market. So if we tackle maybe the domestic and the international one by one, what are the kind of domestic opportunities, particularly for, at least in the first instance, those six priority sectors? Yeah, look, from from a domestic perspective, uh, I think the the opportunities, as we've been stating, to clearly value-add existing product. And that's why the strategy around the food and food and agriculture makes a lot of sense. I think from a domestic perspective, there needs to be a marketplace available. And, uh, and it's interesting, one of the sectors that uh, they've identified is the defence sector. We create a market. We create a market because the Australian government purchases quite a lot of product in the defence space and negotiates with global marketplaces in who buys what defence product from what country. But to me, the best opportunity domestically comes from the domestic market itself. And I'm not sure that we've done enough work around looking at what are the products that we are importing at present that we could actually domestically produce, and they may not sit in these six categories. Mm. Now, I'll give you, give you an example. We import a lot of grey iron castings or import grey iron castings that are machined. We export a lot of the scrap material that's used to produce the product. Uh, mm. Clearly, that's a product that we should be producing more locally, uh, and that's not to fill an export demand, it's to fill a domestic local demand. Export, in that circumstance, would just be icing on top. Look, I think that's critical to the success of, of Australia going forward over the next 10 to 15 years, because there is a demand for local products, but unfortunately a lot of them are, are imported uh, from overseas, where uh, whereby we've got the raw materials to, to fulfil the local manufacturing, but also top it off and become leaders in, in, in export markets of a of certain products. I think the good one, we, we had a discussion about this just a week or so ago, Mark, about value adding is about lithium, yes. um, which is in car batteries, right? Now, it's stating the obvious, you know, surely that can be manufactured or value added here and it still be competitive as through uh, technology and innovation that we can serve international markets. To me, that that's a no-brainer. Yeah, look, I think, I think that's correct. We missed the boat on certain raw materials. Uh, iron ore would be the classic. Bauxite wouldn't be far behind in that uh, you know, we, we don't do a lot of value-add to, to aluminium-based product. We don't do enough value-add to steel-based product. And lithium is a, is a new market. It's a market that's growing at a rapid pace. And uh, we, we are seeing use of lithium in uh, vehicles for uh, battery-powered vehicles. We're going to see lithium used in um, batteries for commercial and domestic use. So it's a, it's a significant area of growth, mm. uh, presents a lot of opportunity. And, uh, and I think it's, it's one of these markets that requires capital uh, and access to resources. And I think if government was to take a longer term view of a marketplace, and I, and I mean well beyond a 10 year view, producing lithium based product would be an ideal opportunity. I don't think there's a single taxpayer who would be upset seeing taxpayer dollars invested in the onshoring of manufacturing-based product that, that we can actually present what the future looks like. Unfortunately, the decisions on where we manufacture a product 
are largely made not by governments, but they're made by international businesses. Governments has the ability to influence where international businesses invest their dollars. So on, on that, and I find this very interesting, you've, you've raised this point of international businesses. Having mm-hmm. a look at the roadmaps, they all talk about providing opportunities and incubators to allow those small and mid-sized companies to really ramp up. So is there an opportunity here for a bit of a, a rebalance between the, the smaller up-and-coming companies and the companies that have been dominating the market up until now? I'd love to see a program that looked at supporting SME because the SME sector does create a lot of the new jobs, but I would love to see government influencing strategically those investments that can't be made by the, the small to medium sized enterprises. To establish a melting facility you know, is a substantial <coughs> investment and there's no SME that would be able to uh, mm. contemplate that. So I think uh, it, we, we need a two-pronged approach where we're actually strategically looking at the right international investors that could actually, or international businesses that could actually provide some of the base material to which we could value add to. Yeah, look, and look, I've, with some of the work I've done for clients over the last few years, I've seen a, I've seen a common trend of the multinationals who's actually been manufacturing and doing some value added manufacturing here in Australia, especially in the pharma industry. You know, just recently, you know, they've taken that decision to offshore that product you know, a product that which we re-import into Australia because the demand for the product is, I think we need to uh, get, the government needs to get closer our land to these to these companies to sell them a longer term vision that we want you to manufacture here in Australia as well. You know, because again, what Mark's saying, the SME is an important marketplace, but the international companies as well, the global companies have a significant influence on our success of manufacturing here in Australia. And, um, you know, we just need to give them that security as well that, hey, We'll want to do business with you, but we want you to be manufacturing here as well. Yeah. All, all sophisticated international businesses include government grants as one of their anticipated revenue sources when making investment decisions. And it's naive to think that we can attract international investment without actually playing in that space. And that's why I think, as I said, uh, SMEs, we do need to support them. They are creating the jobs. but. I think when you want a strategic footprint to be uh, developed, the international players need to be considered. They need to be courted appropriately. And we need to either support where we are not competitive or play the game where uh, government support is an, is an expected contribution. So let's say we have get the domestic market right. So we've got the right incentives in place, we're supporting the SMEs to grow. Once we start looking overseas at those international markets, what are the opportunities for us there? I mean, we all know very much that our major trading partner is China, but surely there are some other opportunities in a global marketplace. Yeah, look, I I think the opportunities sit in the products, not necessarily the markets. And what I mean by that is we're a clean and green country in in many respects. We have the ability to produce a lot of agricultural-based product. And I think that is something that we we actually should be looking at how we can uh, encourage opening up further markets for the the food and beverage industry. I think from a, a markets perspective, we, we've got to target the markets that will will respect and will allow our product into their countries. And if somebody doesn't wish to 
to respect that and, and support that, we should turn to alternative countries. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, is that, Mark? It's, it's certainly not a level playing field. I mean, we've seen just recently, um, you know, we've, we've got a free trade agreement with, with China, for example. And, you know, it's, it's really helped grow wine exports into China. But obviously, we've done too well in that space. You know, obviously, because it was a growth market and I know for some companies um, who have had discussions with it was 40% of the export sales. So a big marketplace. But I think it, it's, it's part of the strategy. We've just had uh, a demand and too close relationship with one country and we've allowed ease of trade to be sacrificed about the longer term objective. That is, we need our eggs to be in numerous different baskets, not just one, and open up not just removing the tariffs, but also it's the importance of the non-tariff barriers. And that is, you know, can you actually get your con your product into a particular country? So and in Japan, for example, they still have a quota regime. So, for example, if we were sending seafood, Australian seafood into Japan, we can only export so much of a particular seafood uh, because they've got quotas we're limited to. Conversely, do we have a quota of uh, Japanese se seafood we could import into Australia? I don't see much of it. So there's interesting dynamics in around these non-tariff barriers that need to address that gives an equal playing field. Aside from removing uh, what they're called tariffs by virtue of agreeing to a free trade agreement and hopefully you know that would give it a level playing field be more easier for companies to access new international markets. Well that's a really interesting point because there'd be some countries around the world that we might like to do business with that already have their internal capability and might not be interested in what we have to sell them. Yeah, and so, Therese, that's a really good point because, for example, if you notice RCEP, part of the negotiations, as well as the, the appetite or the, the, the carrot to get China involved, was India's participation, but they ceased negotiations at the last minute because there was um, some commentary in around, you know, the, the impact of what potentially China might have. And obviously, they're looking at the self-interest point of view as well, where unfortunately, it's not stopped Australia over the years, we'll actually make it easier for, for countries to import goods into into Australia. But we've never thought about, you know, the level of protection for local manufacturers, or we haven't for a long time anyway. And I think India has been a bit more smarter in, the, in, that, in that space. A lot of the countries we've mentioned in terms of an export market have been in Asia, India. Is, is that really where we're limited to because of our proximity to those destinations? Um, I think it goes back to, to what Mark's point uh, was as well. If you've got something of value that another country isn't manufacturing at an affordable price, it opens you up to new markets, so it doesn't become country-specific. You know, uh, talking about value-adding, um, UK would be a good target, right? Or uh, European countries, especially with, you know, batteries. Rather than sourcing from Asia, where they might be sourcing the product, why can't they source from Australia? Nerding, you know, Australia and the UK about to sign, are hoping to sign a, a free trade agreement, and they've got a strong manufacturing of cars. That that would be an obvious trading partner and avenues for new, for new markets. There there are there are a couple of things that give you competitive advantage. Um, I mean, we've got to bear in mind that every country wants to export. There's no real countries out there turning around saying we want to import. Uh, they all want to export something. It's part of uh, developing prosperity. There are obviously a couple of areas where we should be focusing. Uh, we've talked a lot about value adding to product. But the area that we've probably not talked about much is development of IP and the export of IP. And Australia's got a sensational track record for the development of IP. 
uh, whether it be in smelting technologies, whether it be in, in, in Wi-Fi technology. There are a lot of areas where Australia's led on innovation, but we haven't obligated those to, who locally innovate or we haven't incentivised those who locally innovate to actually value add domestically. And if we were to reflect on the role that we have played as a nation in developing some of the critical IP that's in the, in the marketplace, and I point specifically to Wi-Fi, if we were to support, incentivise the, the value out of that domestically, IP is one thing that does give you competitive advantage. But at the moment, we have a, a good system to fund the development of IP, but we don't have at present really a, an obligation associated with valuating IP. And what I mean by that particularly is that uh, we will provide R&D tax incentives and support programs, whether it's commercialisation programs. Those recipients aren't obligated to value add uh, that IP or keep that IP domestically. And I'd love to see some smart thinking from a government perspective on how we can actually do that, because I think that will have a significant impact on our competitive advantage. It's really interesting you've mentioned IP, which, um, at least from my perspective, will require some very highly technical skills. Right at the very beginning of this podcast, we were talking about how automation is actually going to help to reduce labour. What are the skills that will be required for this future modern manufacturing vision that the government has set out for us? Yeah, so automation... What that does is that takes away the, the physical, physical handling and the need to watch machines. And physically hand, handling product is not necessarily a lot of fun. So we are stepping away from that into greater automation. But with automation comes the skills to program the, the, um, the robotics. It comes with the, the skills to look at pushing the limits of the, the automation process to see whether or not we can further automate or effectively produce product to a, a greater degree of complexity than we currently are. So it brings a different style of thinking. What I really like about that style of job is it's actually encouraging greater participation rather than, than as I said, a lot of the traditional manufacturing uh, is not necessarily manufacturing that we really want to keep encouraging. So I think uh, with the development of IP, you need people to develop IP. At the moment, robotics can't, nor, nor can uh, artificial intelligence develop IP yet. And so we need people to develop IP. Those people need to understand if that IP can actually be manufactured. And in order for that to be manufactured, you need a manufacturing mindset as well. So there, there's nothing to fear in respect of automation. With scale brings greater jobs and with scale brings opportunity for you to move into different places, different opportunities. And I think for us, we're the masters of creating bespoke, which is products of one. And uh, that is definitely the, the opportunity if you're going to get uh, improved profits, greater margins and greater, greater satisfaction. And Richard, this question is directed at, at you, and this is very much your wheelhouse. We'd yes. also need some skills around supply chain as well, won't we? We do, yes, and we do. So supply chain is the important piece because, you know, it goes from 
you know, being able to source the goods right through to the end, end delivery point of the goods. And um, without a strong, robust supply chain and understanding all the weak points in your supply chain, it's very difficult for, for companies to succeed, either domestically or internationally. And um, I think going back to Mark's point, it's getting harder to source materials from overseas because of the, the contraction or demand of, of, of capacity through the shipping lines. So, you know, you've got to look for alternative sourcing points, look at, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of, of your shipping lanes, your trading lanes, whether it's via air or sea, that you can actually serve the marketplace. So an interesting point was, was around the COVID vaccine. So this is contra- temperature controlled equipment required. Well, it's a military operation because there's only certain carriers globally who has that capacity or if not, they've had to create capacity to move the vaccine around at temperature control. That in itself is a challenge. You know, you can imagine you didn't have this infrastructure in place 12 months ago, but all of a sudden you got to very quickly, you got to create that infrastructure. And then obviously if it's coming in from overseas, you need that capacity to move it from A to B, temperature controlled. Then domestically when it arrives, it needs to be stored in a certain temperature. And then you need the vans to deliver it to delivery point in a certain temperature. So, this, you know, developing a robust supply chain isn't easy. And again, do we have the capabilities in Australia, you know, and both inbound and outbound to service our potential supply chain needs? Can I say with, with supply chain, procurement is one area that raises concern for me. I mean, uh, procurement used to be very much a profession. It's still a profession, but it's a different style of profession. Procurement today thanks to the the internet and the availability of information has become more of a digital research-based approach rather than a creative approach. Uh, And what I mean by that is that um, a very, very good procurement person can look at the existing supply chain, can create a supplier if they need to, because the supply might not be where it needs to be, or they they can look at supplements, they can look at sub-components or they can look at innovative ways to change that relationship such that they're able to get greater uh, understanding of how to source and manage products. So I think the supply chain is critical but I think what COVID has highlighted is that um, some of the traditional skills around procurement need to be brought back into the uh, the marketplace. I'll be honest uh, Mark and Richard I came into this podcast really excited about these roadmaps and and not that my excitement has been dimmed but it is clearly so much more complex than hitting milestones at two five and ten years in fact it sounds like ten years might not be long enough to make this shift yeah look look, i'm actually really excited about where manufacturing is at the moment i used to spend a lot of my time trying to defend the importance of manufacturing and, and now Thank you, COVID. There's no need for me to defend the importance of manufacturing. I think we need two things. We, we need the ability to map out a roadmap for the Australian manufacturing sector or the Australian economy. And it could be a, a 20, 30, 40 year roadmap, which is what are the products that we think we should be evaluating and what's the supply chains we should own. Uh, Complement that with capturing the opportunities that are available in the short term to either keep existing manufacturers enjoying the, the life they've got at the moment or growing that manufacturing base by uh, looking to import less, certainly import less for domestic consumption and look for export opportunities. I think we're in a really good position 
that if government was to go to taxpayers and say that we're looking at spending money on putting in place a well-protected, and I don't mean tariff-protected, but a well-protected, well-supported manufacturing sector, every taxpayer would say that is what we need. So it's, it's a really positive time if you're looking to uh, grow in the manufacturing sector in Australia. Yeah, look, I agree with what Mark's saying. I don't think there's it's a negative. I think there's opportunity. And I think COVID has changed our thinking to manufacturing here in Australia. So I think now is the time to, to capture it. And I uh, think more, as I said, what Mark said earlier on is don't just necessarily think at these, these uh, think about the six uh, sectors that's been identified. Think more broadly. You know, think more broadly of what, what we're good at doing and what can we actually um, encash and turn into in, into 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 gold really because that's what we need to do is we need to think what we're going to do well in the, in the immediate short term future in, in terms of manufacturing what's our capabilities and that could be continue to encash on the food and beverage agri, agri sector but then what can we could develop for that longer term future as well which is going to create a footprint for jobs in the in the years to come again against around those high value products as well so i think it's quite exciting it's um you know governments could be in a good position to, to build a prosperous future for australia in the next 20 30 years well richard and mark thank you both so much for your time thank you no thank you now uh, can people track you both down on linkedin phone or email if they would like to talk more about what's next for the mmi uh, most definitely. LinkedIn is um, obviously an easy pathway to come to us. If you're a manufacturer, uh, I'll take a phone call 24-7. Uh, always keen to help. So you know where to find us and we are very much keen to support. Yeah, no, same here, um, Therese. I'm very happy to take inquiries via LinkedIn, email, mobile phone. It's always switched on. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more, you can find and subscribe to Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.